Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. First Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2 is where we are today. If you're using one of the Bibles underneath the chairs, that's found on page 670. And by the way, if you are visiting with us and you don't have a Bible or you're investigating Christianity and you don't have a Bible yet, we would love for you to use that Bible today and to take that Bible and make it your own as a gift from us to you. If you were to wake me up at 2 o'clock in the morning and ask me what this sermon is about, I would want to be able to give you a sentence and say, this is what we're going to talk about today. And so let me do that for you. If you were to wake me up at 2 o'clock in the morning, which would not be unusual if you were a little child that lived in my house, that happens occasionally with our four children. They've never once asked me what the sermon is about, but they do wake us up occasionally. First Corinthians chapter 2 is about this, that believing, living, and trusting in the life-giving truth of Christ crucified is the heart of all wisdom, and it is something that only God can give as a gift by His Holy Spirit. Let me just state that again. Believing, living, and trusting in the life giving truth of Christ crucified is the heart of all wisdom and it is something that only God can give as a gift by His Holy Spirit. Well, here's what we're going to do today. Usually I read the whole text and then I'll work my way back through it. But we're going to, I think, Lord willing, cover the whole chapter of chapter 2 today in our series on 1 Corinthians that we've entitled Messy Church, Beautiful Christ, about Paul's letter to the Corinthians. But today I think I'm just going to begin reading in 1 Corinthians and make my points as I go. So um, in a moment I'll start reading. But before we do that, let me pray and just ask God to help us as we engage His holy word. Lord, thank you so much. We, we are so grateful for so many things this morning. Thank you, thankful for these young men in the military and young women that serve us well. Many of them that are going into difficult training, some of them that will be with us for just a little while and then will be deployed overseas in dangerous areas. Thank you for them. Lord, I pray that we would minister to them well and that we would love them well and that we would display Christ to them so that they might be missionaries in all of the places that they will go in this land. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the ministry of pioneers. We are so humbled to be in partnership with them and we thank you for the great work that is going on in this organization that has a heart for the gospel in unreached places. So appropriate as we study Paul, whose, hearts, whose heart was to take the gospel where you were not yet named. And now, Lord, as we open your word, as we continue our series through this beautiful, raw, and gritty letter, I pray today would not be a mental or religious exercise, but that I pray that at the end of the day we would see Christ magnified, incarnate and exalted, glorified, reigning and ruling over everything that is, commanding all men and all women and all boys and all girls everywhere to repent and believe and trust and follow Him and thereby find the only thing that really satisfies. I pray today that the eternal Word of God, Jesus, would stand forth from the written Word of God. 
I pray along the lines of that old Puritan prayer that I read every time before I preach that I, would, that I personally would not make such beautiful content, that I would not treat it in a defective way, that you would help me and that you would illumine to our hearts Christ and Him crucified. I pray that Christians would have their hearts stirred. I pray that those that are not yet born again would be given the gift of repentance and trust and belief and that in your good pleasure you might cause people in this room today to be born again. And I pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 1, remember Paul is bringing the gospel to the Corinthian church. He planted the church there. Then he left, and now he's receiving word back that the church is, is splintering and bickering and arguing and uh, awash in all sorts of carnality. They're, they're, uh, they're doing <laughs> lots of crazy things that do not magnify Christ. So he's hearing back from it. Now he's writing back to this church, trying to correct them and center them again on the message of the gospel, the purity of the gospel, and the simplicity and the power of what Christ did on the cross as the means of all hope and living for a Christian. And so he writes in chapter 2, verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now let's stop there and settle down for a minute. Remember Paul in the first chapter is writing about and talking about that there's these factions developing in the church. One of them in particular was saying that they follow this man named Apollos, who was a very gifted, eloquent preacher who was a Christian and preaching the gospel. But some of the Corinthians, because it was the culture of their day, were, were sort of uh, attracted to him because of his wisdom and because of his, his intellect and the manner in which he preached. And so there was this culture in Greek, uh, in Greek civilization at that time that really valued sort of uh, esoteric uh, wisdom where it kind of made sort of intellectualism sort of the, the highest ideal. And Paul is realizing that when we sometimes rest on human wisdom and eloquence and the package that things come in, that it can rob the gospel of its power. And so Paul is saying here to these people that, hey, listen, I was a, I was a bare knuckle preacher to you. I wasn't, I wasn't packaging it in in projecting it in sort of this health and, 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 and image of prosperity and, and slickness. And let's just pause there and say that this is, is this not a contrast with sort of the American cult of personality where we worship uh, seemingly successful, healthy, wealthy preachers who look like they just got their teeth whitened and came out of a tanning bed? and have their hair slicked back, and their message is basically, look how Jesus has made me better. Look, we, we need to guard ourselves against... I mean, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with shaving and combing your hair and, you know, tucking in your shirt or not before you preach, but, but just, just let's contrast our thirst for packaging and slickness versus the rawness and the grittiness of the way Paul preached in... 
the scriptures and to the Corinthians. I, I think that's telling. And so may we always be humble. May we always be humble. Paul tells them, though, more importantly in this, in verse 2, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I think this is really kind of the crux of what Paul's message is to the Corinthians. He says, I decided, think about this now, let's really kind of unpack this sentence. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Does that mean that Paul only preached messages or taught teachings on the cross, like exactly what Jesus did in his death and his burial and his resurrection. No, I don't think that's specifically what Paul is talking about there. When you read in Paul's letter the words Christ crucified, what Paul means in that is he's talking about the whole work of Christ, which is the gospel. Jesus' life, his perfection in his humanity, his resistance and, and victory over temptation, and then his voluntary laying down his life to be crucified, to be an atoning satisfactory substitute for our sin and then his victory over sin and death through his resurrection. And so when Paul talks about the message of Christ crucified, he's really talking about kind of all of the gospel and all of the good doctrine that flows out of it. But uh, 2000 years, we've sort of later, we have sort of come to this faulty notion oftentimes in American Christianity that sort of sees the gospel as like the, the introductory message into Christianity and then we kind of move on to the other stuff that will kind of help you live life. You know, we've got, we've got the gospel. That's how you enter. And now we get in this big sort of, of pastor of Christianity where we've got to do a little teaching on finances. And we've got to do a little teaching on marriage. We've got to do a little teaching on parenting. We've got to do a little teaching on how to manage our anger. And all of these things are kind of what the meat and heart of, of kind of being a good person is about. And what Paul would say to us today, and I believe he's saying to the Corinthians, is nothing could be further from the truth. Everything, everything, the whole message of the scriptures and the whole message of the gospel is what Christ has done, what God has done in Christ on the cross to reconcile sinners to himself so that they might make much of him and glorify God with the rest of their lives. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that everything, Paul's message, the message of the Bible, the gospel, everything we preach and teach here must be tethered to the message of the gospel. So how does, this, how does this work out? Well, does that mean that every sermon or every text or every message or every teaching needs to be specifically about the resurrection? No, not necessarily. But it means that nothing means anything unless it is tethered or tied to the work of God on the cross through Christ and his death and burial and resurrection. Let me just kind of illustrate this. So the message of Christianity is what God has done in Christ on the cross through his atoning death and victorious resurrection on our behalf so that we might be brought back to life and thereby glorify God with all of our lives. That's the message of the gospel. You must respond to that, by the way, if you, if, in order to be a Christian. And then there's all sorts of truth in life, that, all sorts of wisdom that flows from that. For example, we should manage our money well. Why? So that we can save and not be in debt? Well, no, not really. We need to manage our money well so that we can give more away, so that we can reflect Christ and what He has done for us. We need to, we need to parent well. Why? So that our kids can get a, a, a scholarship or not grow up and hang out in the mall with pants hanging around their ankles and, you know, dressing in strange gothic clothes? No! 
That's not why we want to teach about parenting. We want to teach about parenting because we want our, our parenting to... By the way, if we, I mean, if you dress in black, we're cool with that. I mean, I, I don't... I mean, look, yeah, there's all sorts of cultures. I mean, I... I'm, but we want to talk about parenting because, because we want to, as Christians, reflect the gospel in our parenting. We want to be a picture, a shadow of the Father's love for us, and we want our homes to resemble that. And so every area of life, whether it's parenting or finances or sexuality or, or, or anger management or whatever, if you teach on it as a standalone sort of thing, it just becomes a dead-end morality clause rather than connected to the gospel. And what Paul is saying here is that the only message of Christianity is Christ and Him crucified and His resurrection and what He has done reconciling the world to Himself and everything flows from that. And when things sort of stand alone, when good teaching, when, when good ethics and good morality and the right way to live stands alone as itself in a silo, it quickly dead ends on itself and becomes self-righteous legalism. And Paul is saying that everything flows from the gospel. That's what he means when he says that, that his only message is Christ crucified. So that's point number one. Everything flows from the message of Christ crucified. Everything, everything's connected to that. Every doctrine in the Bible is not a standalone truth so that you might have a better life or so that we might be propelled into some health and wealth. Every truth that is, that exists, exists to point people to the glory of Christ on the cross. That's the first message that I think the first point that Paul would would make to the Corinthians that we need to settle on today. So so there's a couple things here is we need to we need to learn how to preach this to ourselves regularly. Friends, at the core, we don't need we don't need self-help techniques. Let me illustrate this. This was Friday. This was just this Friday. We had a membership class here some people, uh, we referred to that, had about 80 or 90 folks here. I was kind of, I was geeked up for that. I was, I was you know, I, I mean, it's not, I still get a little, I mean, the adrenaline gets flowing when I get in front of people. I don't just like roll out of bed and walk up here and say, hey, hey open your Bibles. I mean, I get a little, the juices get flowing. And so on, on Friday afternoon, I got a call from our babysitter who was home our, with our children. And she said, um, she said, Brad, there's some people here in some tow trucks and they're towing some old scrap metal that was sort of on the side of the property that we own. Jennifer and I moved into a new house about six months ago, and there, the house was vacant for some time, and it was, I think the part of the property was used as kind of like a dump. And so there was this big, huge, rusted metal tank over on the side. And when we were moving into the house, there was this lady who I could tell was very, very poor, and, and things had not gone well for her. She was rummaging around. They were looking for scrap metal to take and sell. And um, we let her take some stuff, but there was this big tank, and she says, I want to someday come back with a tow truck and, and get this out of here so I can salvage it and get some money out of it. And I said, oh, well, okay. But she kept coming back, and she was bringing some, some men with her that were, were just a little shady looking, you know, and I was just a little concerned about, you know, maybe they might be casing the house. And I was just kind of being insecure and fearful. And so I told her six months ago, I said, listen, don't, don't come back, I, you know, I I just, I don't, please don't bring anybody on my property when I'm not here. Um, I, I'm going to really ask you not to be on our property when I'm not here. I just felt a little, uh, I felt a little scared about, about them being there when I wasn't there. Well, uh, she was there with this tow truck uh, Friday. Didn't tell me, didn't know. And so I, our, our babysitter called us. I flew out of here about 2 o'clock. I just 
maybe I sped down River Road. I don't know. <laughs> I turned in, and you know that kind of that, those feelings in your stomach when you're angry and you're feeling threatened? And I had butterflies, you know what I mean? And I, all the way I was, I was practicing the conversation, conversation as I went. You do that too. You know what I'm talking about. And I got out of the car, and there's these two cats, nice dudes from you know, Joe's tow truck service, reeling up this big, huge metal tank. And I get out of the car, and I mean, I jump all over her and them. I mean, I lose it. I was a poor, I, I, did, I was not a good gospel witness at all. I was angry. I was scared because I was thinking, you know, I, I didn't want them there. I felt, my, I felt like my children were threatened. It was unrighteous. It was wrong. I sinned. I mean, I sinned in anger. I calmed down quickly after about 30 seconds. The tow truck drivers were like, who's this cat? And I said, look, I'm not angry at you guys. I'm sorry. She was real upset. Uh, in fact, the t- my sin even went further than that. The tow truck drivers, after things kind of settled down, they said, hey, well, what's your name? I just said, my name's Brad. I didn't tell my last name because uh, I, didn't, I didn't want them to maybe someday hear my name in association with Crosspoint. So anyway, I just told them I'm Brad, uh, you know, Jones or whatever. <laughs> I'm so, oh, it's so terrible. And so anyway, I settled down. I just, so I drove back. They took the thing out. It was fine. Actually, I was glad they got that thing out of there. But I, I came back. I came back here, and then I had to get some notes ready for the new member class. And um, look, that lady is long gone. I will probably never see her again. I've probably never see those, those tow truck guys ever again. I needed the gospel in that moment. I needed, you know what I needed to do? I didn't need three steps on how to manage my anger. I needed to confess my sin, to repent of my sin, and to be renewed in the grace, the majesty, the righteousness of Christ. I wish I could have tracked that lady down and I'm going to have to leave her. I don't think she was a Christian. I'm going to have to leave her to the good providence of God. But I, had to, I just found Holly. She was in the office, and I sat down. I said, Holly, I just, I just blew it. I, just, I need to repent and confess my sin. I, just, uh, I need the gospel. I need to remember Christ crucified. I need to remember what happened on the cross. And this is what happened on the cross. It's called the great exchange by the reformers. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, coined this phrase. And he got this from 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you can put that up on the screen. It says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God, the Father, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to actually be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the gospel is this. What happens on the cross is that my sin, past, present, and future, because I have repented and believed in Jesus, gets transferred on Jesus. So the punishment for my very unrighteous anger in that moment is now Jesus has satisfied the punishment for that, that sin. And by the way, friends, I mean, my sins have been much more wicked than a moment of anger. Believe me. I mean, it it would be inappropriate for me to talk to you about all my other stuff that Christ has atoned. I'm not just trying to be cute. Oh, anger. Oh, you struggle with anger. (laughs) I've struggled. And all of it is on Christ's shoulders. And then he satisfies it. He removes it. And then what Luther called the great exchange is Christ gets my sin and then I get his righteousness. That's what happens on the cross. And we remember that in the moment. And so when we sin 
And when we fall short of that, what we need is not morality and teaching that stands alone on how to live a better life, but we need to remember the gospel that Christ has bathed me in his forgiveness and given me his righteousness. And now the most defining characteristic about me is not that I failed in that moment, but I have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, who is good and faithful to forgive me of my sins when I repent to him and I am made new in Christ. And so the truest thing about me is the righteousness of Christ. And so when I trust in Christ on the cross... When the Father looks down on me, even in that moment of failure, as I again and again come in humility and repentance to Him, He sees not failure, but He sees Christ's imputed, transferred perfection and righteousness that has been given to me that I wear as a robe. That is the message of Christ crucified. That's the gospel. That's life and every other area. Arguments with your spouse, failings in your parenting, mismanagement of your money, sexual sin, even after you've been a Christian and you trip up and you fall again, that besetting sin that seems to rear its ugly head. What do you do with that? Do you go to some little silo of teaching where you can kind of conquer it no you tether it all to the cross the savior who died and received and extinguished the punishment for that sin and now gives you his righteousness that you now wear as a robe that's the message of the cross and remembering that again and again and again is the only message that matters and that's what paul is saying to these corinthians and he would say to us again and again everything flows from the message of christ crucified well, let's keep reading in verse 6. And Paul continues and he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Listen to these words. Now, these, are, these words are hard and they are heavy and they are humbling. He says, okay, we impart this wisdom. And when Paul talks about wisdom, he's not talking about techniques to live a better life he's talking about the knowledge of what i just unpacked about christ crucified yet among the mature we do impart wisdom although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of god which god decreed before the ages for our glory so what is that secret and hidden hidden wisdom it is the message of christ crucified so to us it's not secret and hidden god has shown his people, the beauty and the simplicity and the power and the majesty of the message of the gospel. But in his providence, he hides it from some people. And I know that's a, that's a troubling thing to grapple with, but that is over and over and over again. Jesus, his, his disciples asked him why he spoke in parables. And he says, basically, well, because, you know, it's my will to reveal myself to people or not. In fact, he, there's even scriptures that allude to where God actually doesn't tell people things, doesn't show himself to people. That is a humbling biblical truth about God that we have to wrestle with. And here it says basically that same thing, that God, to his people, reveals Christ crucified. Let's keep reading in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit 
searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, verse 12, listen to this. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So what Paul is saying here is that there's this wisdom. And this wisdom is not some strange, hard-to-figure-out, esoteric, um, philosophical, ancient Greek mythology. It is the simple, beautiful power and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is wisdom. That is true wisdom. And then he says that this true wisdom is a gift that only God can give. And that's our second point. The first thing is that everything flows from the message of Christ crucified, and that in itself is all that there is to wisdom. And then the second point that Paul makes is that God gives the Spirit as a gift, and he gives this wisdom, which is the knowledge of Christ crucified through the Spirit. That's what he says in verse 12. Now, we have received, go back to verse 12. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Friends, let's admit that this is, this is a little humbling. Paul is saying that the only thing that matters is Christ and Him crucified and all of the good doctrine and truth that flows out of that. And then he's saying that now you can't figure this out on your own. It is a gift that must be given to you by God. And when you receive this gift, you now see everything that God gives you freely as a gift. So what does the Spirit give us? Well, the first thing that the Spirit gives us is not just wisdom about how to live better for the sake of Christ. The first thing He does is he, he causes us to be born again. He regenerates. The Spirit actually brings life. We don't work ourselves into. We don't, we don't repent ourselves into or... Sunday school class our way into or study the Bible our way into or memorize verses into or clean up our life into new life. It's a gift that the Holy Spirit gives. He causes us to be born again. Listen to this. John, or I'm sorry, Titus. In fact, Reynolds read it earlier. But when the goodness, Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that means making something come back to life, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And so the first gift that God gives is he gives new life through his Spirit. If you are a Christian, whether you realize it or not, this is how you became a Christian. The Bible is clear that all of us stand as rebellious, dead sinners by birth, by nature, and by choice. That's how we enter this world. We may be physically alive and emotionally alive, but we are spiritually dead. We're not neutral. We're not minimized. We are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And as a result, we're, by nature, objects of wrath. Colossians 2 says we're dead in our sins. And so we're born spiritually dead. And salvation is such a scandalous, beautiful gift that God comes and by His Spirit, He causes the gospel to come and hit a human heart. And the Spirit brings that life-giving arrow, that life 
giving news of the gospel and it literally makes that dead life come to new life and then the first response of that new life is faith and trust in Jesus. And so it's a gift. It is completely a gift. This should do a couple things. It should cause us to be unbelievably humble. If you are a Christian, you should be unbelievably humble because it is not because you grew up in the South. It's not because you're a relatively good kid compared to somebody else. It's because God in His graciousness caused you, as First Peter says, to be born again by the living and abiding Word of God, which is the message of Christ crucified, which came to you via the Holy Spirit's life-giving power. That is unbelievably humbling and comforting all at the same time. That means if you're alive, you're not alive according to your own cognition or wisdom. You're alive because God in His providence made you alive through His gospel and the Spirit that carried it to your heart. That is, that is really good news. And I just pray that you're soaking that in right now because you're not acting like it's good news. Spirit regenerates us, opens our hearts, and applies the work of Christ. And then he tells us, listen to this phrase in verse 12 at the end. He tells us he not only brings us to life, but then he shows us things that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And so listen, so that means that if we're Christians and if we have come back to life, if the Spirit, as John 3 says, Jesus says in John 3, that it blows as it wills and it comes and it gives you life and it regenerates your heart. And now you respond in faith and trust in Christ. Then the rest of your life is now discovering all the things that freely Christ gives you in his salvation that then you might display so that you would be a more beautiful fragrance of his glory to the world than that he would draw used to draw as an evangelizing agent to bring more people to Jesus. And he shows us, and this is the rest of the Christian life, just delving in the beauty and the depth and the glory of the gospel. Listen to this, this quote that I came across this week. I haven't read this book, but I've read some things by this author. And I'm not exactly sure where he stands with the Lord. I think he's a believer in Jesus. I'm not sure... Uh, really what sliver of the church he's from. And so if you happen to read something from this author that is totally whack, I don't, I don't uh, endorse that. But this particular quote from his book, I endorse. It is so good. His name is Peter Kreft. And I have a friend here in the church who likes him, reads him. I may be pronouncing his name incorrectly, but Peter Kreft, he wrote a book called Heaven. And this is what he says about the inheritance, the things that Christ freely gives us. Listen to this, this quote. Now suppose, it's a quote about heaven, it's a quote about the inheritance, it's a quote about the joy and the depth of the beauty of all that is ours in Christ Jesus. He says, now suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Of course, we don't have to suppose that because we know that's the truth according to the scriptures, right? He says, now suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty. I don't know what indubitable means. I think it's a good word that you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, listen to this, despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. 
Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? In other words, what, what, who, if God is forced, who can be against us, Paul says in Romans 8? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven, which is Christ? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny, less a scratch of a penny. And so what this verse means and what Kreft sort of, I think, brings out in his quote is that when we understand the beauty of Christ crucified, we don't just get saved and then go about our life living now knowing that when we die eventually we're going to go to heaven. But we now, by the Spirit of God, realize and understand the things that He has freely given us. And so what can this world do to us? So then we are freed from the insecurities of life. Then who cares, young ladies, if your girlfriend looks better in a pair of jeans than you do? Who cares? Who cares if your homeboy that's a knucklehead somehow got the better looking girl? Who cares, man? Who cares? Because Christ has freely given you all things. Who cares about the little insecurities and the little knit-knack picking little things that go on in human interaction? It should free us from the muck and the mire and the insecurity of this world when we understand the beauty and the depth and the majesty and the internal joy that Christ freely gives us. And when we live like that, friends, it satisfies our heart. In fact, it is the only thing that can satisfy. It It frees us. It frees us. Yes. God can only give that as a gift. And so, that humbles us deeply. And it should bring us to a place of joy and trust in Christ and not ourselves. And he continues now in these last three verses, 14, 15, and 16. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Listen to this next sentence now. And he is speaking of the natural person, which is like biblical vernacular or Paul's phrase for people who have not yet received Christ, people who are still dead in their sin, natural carnal mind. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to, be, so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So he's juxtaposing here Christians who Christ has made alive by the gospel and his spirit and people who are not yet Christians who are completely unable. The theologians call this doctrine total inability. That means that we are unable to save ourselves. And at first glance, that seems like really, really bad news. But in actuality, it is unbelievably glorious news. Why is total inability to save yourself great news? Well, if you're a Christian, the fact that you are totally unable to save yourself is great news because now you can reflect back on your salvation with unbelievable confidence and assurance because you know that you didn't save yourself and so you're not going to keep yourself saved. Christ's saving work in your life is much more about His glory than your 
effort. You just responded to being made alive. Just the spiritual OBGYN, Dr. Holy Spirit spanked you on the, the hiney when you came out of the womb of faith and you just responded. That's all you did. You just breathed and, and hopefully you, you know, latched on and started feeding. That's sanctification. Well, that, that analogy is going way too far. <laughs> but it was actually pretty good. It was actually pretty good. You're born again. In fact, John says, you're, you're not born of your own will. Christ made you alive. You come out of the, the birth canal of life crying, repenting, believing. And then sanctification is latch on, baby, and feed. Latch on. All right, enough of that. I'm, I'm going to get talked to about that one afterwards by my wife. So, if you, so this is such glorious news because if you're a Christian, then you, you didn't do it, so... Stop trusting on yourself to keep it going. In fact, that's Paul's message to the Galatians. He says, you started out in the spirit. Now you're, starting to, you're trying to continue this thing in the flesh, in human effort. Who bewitched you? He says, who cut in on you and, and told you that lie? This is glorious news because if you're a Christian, man, trust again in a Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself again and again. Realize that more than just the forgiveness of sins happened on the cross but the transfer of Christ's righteousness to you so that you could defeat sin and continue to live for Christ and grow in Him and be a guy that can manage your anger and be a guy that can keep your sexuality intact and be a guy that can treat your wife like Christ treats the church. And you can be a guy who parents well, not because you went to an individual seminar and I'm all for teaching, but because it's connected to what Christ did on the cross for you. That is great news. And this, although it seems counterintuitive, is great news for you if you're not a Christian and you realize it right now. Because that means that you can't, in fact, don't have to do anything to be saved. This is good news. There's no sliding, mysterious scale of human merit that once you get past this little tick on the scale of good works that you somehow get in. The great news, the scandalous, glorious news of the gospel is that we are made new by Christ because of what He did on the cross, what He did in His perfection. He fulfilled the requirement of God for you. And so if you are even hearing this message and it's making sense to you, I believe that is tremendously powerful evidence that Christ is a glory. He is making Himself, He is making you aware of what He did on the cross by His Spirit. So now all you have to do is breathe, breathe trust and faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross. That's all you got to do. That's all. That's it. That is gloriously good news. Gloriously good news. I end with this quote from my historical hero, Charles Spurgeon. I know I haven't read any Spurgeon quotes in the last few weeks and you guys have been wondering what's going on. Uh, I love reading Spurgeon uh, before I preach. He, first of all, it's humbling. Uh, second of all, he holds out Christ. And he pleads for people to come to Jesus. And I love that about him. This is what Spurgeon says about this text when he preached on it on November 2nd, I believe, 1884. He says, the best preaching is, we preach Christ crucified. The best living is, we are crucified with Christ. The best man is a crucified man. 
the more, listen to this, the more we live beholding our Lord's unutterable griefs and understanding how He has fully put away our sin, the more holiness we shall produce. Think about that. The more you consider the glory of the crucifixion, the more holiness it produces in you. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, where we can view heaven and earth and hell, all moved by His wondrous passion, the more noble will our lives become. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Get close to Christ and carry the remembrance of Him about you from day to day and you will do right royal deeds. Come, let us slay sin. Let us beat pornography, young man. Let us beat temptation, young lady. Let us slay sin for Christ was slain. Come, let us Bury all our pride, for Christ was buried. Come, let us rise to the newness of life. Let's not blow up at the tow truck guy again and the poor lady. Let's repent and believe and receive the righteousness of Christ. Let's rise to the newness of life, for Christ has risen. Let us be united with our crucified Lord in His one great object. Let us live and die with Him. And then every action of our lives will be very beautiful. Oh, that is so good. Back to my introductory sentence. Believing and living and trusting in the life-giving truth of Christ crucified is the heart of all wisdom. And it is something that only God can give as a gift by His Holy Spirit. Christian, do you need to be renewed in the power of Christ and His work on the cross so that you might do noble deeds for Him? Then glory in this as we respond to Christ. Unbeliever, has it become evident to you that you have not yet responded to Jesus in repentance and faith? Oh, if you even realize that, do you realize that you are right now likely being gifted with God's life-giving message? And the Spirit, even as we speak, is causing you to be born again. Don't trust in yourself. Don't look to your sin. Don't consider your unworthiness. We're all unworthy. Come to Christ. And Christ crucified. And trust in Him. Let's pray. And ask God to help us. And then we'll respond in worship. Lord, as we now spend a few moments letting these truths sink down in our heart, would you be so kind as to move amongst us in a unique and powerful and simple way? Let Christians see the beauty of Christ crucified and let us respond appropriately. Let our lives be so stirred with love and passion for what Jesus has done that we would not just be people who rest on our knowledge of the Bible or our church attendance or our relative decency, but that we would be humbled and 
stirred to a living and breathing orthodoxy, a living and breathing passionate response to Christ. Lord, would you do that for us that are already Christians? And Lord, for those that are not, would you cause them to see Jesus and respond in faith and trust in him? And then, Lord, as we sing a few songs and pray together and receive communion for those of us that are believers in Jesus, God, would you cause Jesus to be exalted in our mind's eye so that we might see and savor him. I pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.